<laughs> so today's Tuesday, January, sorry, February 7th in the morning, and I'm sitting here with Barry Morishita. Did I say that correct? You did, yes. Well, thank you again for coming here today. We're going to be talking a little bit about the current state of the Alberta politics, economics, healthcare, things like that. I think we can jump right into it. Do you want to mind just telling me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm, uh, I come from a municipal background. Uh, born and raised in southern Alberta. I was a municipal politician for 16 years. Um, in that 16 years, I was mayor for just about six. Um, and as well, I have a provincial background. I was the on the board of directors for what was then the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. Mm -hmm. And I was president for four years. And I got to tour the entire province. So uh, communities are my thing. I've uh, nearly 260 members that I visited over a four-year period. And it's a great experience. Uh, I recommend uh, if people are interested in politics, municipal politics is a real good place to start. You know, I almost ran for mayor this past election in Fort Saskatchewan. Oh, there just you go. throw my name in there. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, it's a really good experience, and it has it's the most impactful level of government you can be a part of. Yeah. And it kind of leads to why I got into provincial politics because I felt honestly one of the problems. Uh, that we have at the municipal level is that there's just the, the province uh, controls too much they are um, they don't give enough authority to municipalities they don't collaborate enough with them and that results in a lot of inefficiencies and a lot of problems lingering for a long time yeah you know i, I especially know what you mean especially when it comes to health care um i think that i can speak a little bit about experience working in small rural communities and the dramatic state of affairs that we're in yeah so a lot of these rural facilities, I don't think people realize this. We're on like a on the verge of a breaking point. There's very short staffed, yep. generally small teams of 10 people all working seven days a week, being called to work every day they're not working. And it's led to a substantial amount of service reductions in our province. Absolutely. I know a mayor of a small community. I won't name her. Uh, she's the mayor of the county, not the town. Yeah, yeah. And this this hospital has a fifty percent reduction in services. It's been about eight months now, and there is no action from the provincial government to coordinate with herself to be able to make incentives for nurses, physicians to be able to go and work there permanently. Yeah. And so I spoke with her, and I was talking to her about some ideas. And I, one big thing is like there needs to be housing. Yeah. Because if you look at myself. If I'm coming fresh out of nursing school, I got no place to live. No. I'm not going to move 500 kilometers outside of a city to rent a house that's probably $1,500, $1,600 a month. <laughs> yep. And then, you know, just... Yeah. And, and just, I think I think there's all kinds of things. If you don't coordinate those kinds of things, yeah. and I, I know some communities just like that, it's not a not a uncommon story it's a pretty common story yeah you have situations where the working conditions themselves that you spoke about them are are so onerous uh, like you said called in when you're not scheduled uh, asked to yeah. stay longer when uh, when because of what the workload or the emergency load or whatever's going on and how can you you know sell a package so I've, I've been involved in doctor recruitment in my municipal life that was something we did every year for every 16 years i was on council doctor recruitment was a thing because uh you know we're we're at a place of fifteen thousand. um we have facilities and things and we still struggled and that that's a systemic problem across that but you can't do it unless you do it together there's People choose to live places for more reasons than just their profession. Yeah, they choose those places for more reason than just the wage. You know, uh, you can't pay people 
um, enough to be in a miserable situation or a tough situation or one that doesn't suit their family. So, you know, the fact that they aren't with us on this, aren't really, we're not walking hand in hand, is a terrible thing, actually. Yeah, it is. So you made a post on LinkedIn that you were going to try to tackle the shortage in a way by increasing the seats in the colleges and universities to graduate more healthcare professionals. So to me, that's obvious. And this physician shortage, nursing shortage, it's not new. No, <laughs> 20 years, 20 years minimum. Like I said, I, 16 years of municipal, yeah. and that was 25 years when I first, we were looking for doctors then. So what the hell? Yeah, um, I don't know. I, it's just, it's flabbergasting because it is such an obvious answer. It's such an obvious solution that would have dramatically made a difference. And we're still sitting here and nothing's happening. Nope. Is there a reason that you know of why they just can't do this? Why this isn't happening? I don't know. I I, I think it comes down to money. You know, it costs money to create spaces in universities. You have to, you know, in in, uh, Alberta, although the tradition seems to be quickly changing, that, um, you know, you invest in education, you invest in post-secondary education. So we subsidize it. Um, and that seems to be going away. They may, seem to be making it harder for students to take that on. I was door knocking in the by-election here a few months ago, and I ran across a nursing student uh, who, who was uh, a brilliant kid in school and is very well suited to be a nurse. Uh, and that was really interesting. I was talking to her mother and her at the same time, which is really interesting. You know, she's, she's a real people person, has incredible... Uh, you know, talents other than just, you know, the technical science of a nurse. Yeah. Um, 94% average to get in, you know, interviews and paperwork and uh, and a struggle. And she said, you know, the thing that discouraged her about becoming a nurse, because she's always wanted to be one, was the burden of getting into nursing school. And so she was ready to quit several times before she even stepped across the threshold. Very discouraging. So... Uh, you know, to answer, get back to your question, I don't know why, but I, but I think it comes down to the priorities of the government and then the priorities of the last 10 years in particular and beyond, because this is a, a crisis that's been looming for a long time. Uh, they just didn't want to invest the money. It was going to be expensive. You know, you cannot get to the place where we have enough family doctors, where we have enough allied health professionals without making upfront investments. You know, we brag all the time in Alberta about how we're growing and importing people and babies are being born and, and school kids are there, except we don't have any services for them, right? Yeah. We just have that one line. Look at all, we had 32,000 people join the province. Okay, well, where's the schools? Where's the doctors? Where's the nurses to look after those 32,000? Gets left behind. And, and if you can find out what the answer to that question, that would be awesome. But uh, somebody told me the, 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 the best time to fix a problem would have been yesterday. And the next next day is, is today. We're still where we are. And the Alberta Party saying, you know, we know that's not a magic bullet today. But this is not a crisis that's going to get better. It's one yeah. that's going to get worse. I think... In terms of like provincial politics, you know, there's four-year terms. So a lot of their goals are short-sighted goals because they want to, now this is coming from a guy who's outside of provincial politics. So you can correct me, please, if I'm wrong. But when they get into office, they want to do something that is realizable in those four years. So we don't get a lot of those long-term goals. So I've also worked as a nurse in Quebec. I can tell you that they have a phenomenal primary care system. But it was not out of work that was done over four years. Yeah, it was a long-term action plan that came out of decades of work. So this, like you said, increasing spots in colleges—it's not going to pay off next year. No. Can we bring in 500 nurses internationally 
within six months? Yeah, we can, right? But what about the people here, right? Yeah. What about, like you said, 94% average to get into yeah. a nursing program? Makes no sense. It doesn't. Um, but that's the lack of spaces dictate the price of admission. And that's just not, that's not right. Um, yeah. You know, what, what the provincial government, and you know, I agree that that's what the mindset of a provincial governing party seems to be is that well, we've got to post some wins here guys yeah so it looks like we're doing something you know the, the last announcement on ems in my, my to, a total joke uh in terms of actually making any difference because it's not going to really make any difference in fact now we hear the stories about how how they're already offsetting calls and we're, we're we've heard a couple of stories here in alberta in the last week about you know people getting pushed off to 811 already because probably because oh, somebody man. heard a press conference and said oh we can do that now you know that we're not we're not really tackling the problem and what's really upsetting for me as a as an albertan born and bred here in this province i love this place and i think the potential of it is amazing they don't give people enough credit for being smart you know what? I understand. If you explain to me, hey, I'm going to double the spaces, that means, you know, that maybe hopefully your kids are going to have access to a family doctor and they're not going to be in the stress situation you're in. It's going to take us a while. They understand that. You know, you they actually do. But politicians, for some reason, don't. If they don't see their name in the news or they don't see their poll number going up because they made some podium announcement on something, they think they haven't done it right. But, you know, it, it, I trust Albertans to make good judgments based on good information. And I think, uh, for some reason, politicians have forgotten all about that. Yeah. Uh, and I think we need to do politics differently, to your point about long term. Yeah. People understand that. They make those choices every day in their own lives about uh, investments, whether to buy a house, whether to live somewhere else. They do that with thoughtfulness and consideration. And then they, uh, politicians think, well, no, they don't. And it's just it's insulting, to be honest. So eight one one, pushing nine one one calls to eight one one. I couldn't believe it. Uh, <laughs> I don't either. When I read that, yeah. Um, first, the news article. You know, I don't know about the state of the. You know, the state of news companies like Global News, especially the reporting is just atrocious, in my opinion. Global News, like a five hundred word article, doesn't tells you nothing. But yeah. the article was terrible. Like the headline told you nothing about the actual program. Yeah, said pushing EMS calls to nurses. What does that mean? Yeah. So they're gonna have people who call nine one one who want to care. Know. Yes. And they're Richard. gonna push them to an eight one one to a nurse that walks you through dozens of questions. Of course, you know there's initial questions: chest pain, shortness of breath. That would be automatically filtered back to EMS. Yeah. But People know what, if they're calling 911, they know what 811 is. Yes. And I just hope no one gets hurt. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And just, again, these signals, see, and they don't really think about it. So they stand at the podium and say, we're going to divert 40,000 calls away from EMS. That's I think that was the number, they up to 40,000. And I'm thinking to themselves, okay, that's great. So some guy walks away or some person walks away from that press conference and goes, oh, that's such a, a smart thing to do until they're the ones calling 911. Yeah. And they don't think about that, right? They, they want to make the podium statement, we're so smart, uh, but we don't go back and say, hey, how does this affect anybody? Yeah. They just don't. And it, you know, uh, it's frustrating because the answers in my mind are all there. Yeah. They have been there for years. They just have not acted on it. 
Um, you know, they're, they're, they just released a report on um, health care and mental health. And in 2015, David Swan was uh, in the legislature and he was chairing a committee. Had a whole bunch of recommendations on that. I was just going through them uh, here a few days ago just to yeah. see, because it seems we're doing another one. Or uh, Why are we doing another one? We haven't even acted on any of the ones from 2015 when the NDP was in power. So it's, it's, it's this mindset, again, of... Trust Albertans when you do something good, that you make some progress, they will reward you uh, because you've done that. But it, does, it seems if we, we just want to make announcements, we don't care about the outcome. And we, I've seen it time and time again. So I think I want name drop Daniel Smith here. Okay. I don't, did you get the pamphlet about the health care reform in the mail? I don't know if I have oh, yet. No. Anyways, or same thing on the website. Okay, yeah. We're going to make health care reform. Yeah. Okay, and yeah, are you in high school? Is that the limit of your ability to produce a plan of action when you're in the yeah. highest level of government in a province? Well, remember, she originally said it was only going to take her 90 days to fix this. She said 90-day action plan was going to be there. It was going to change things. Action plan, I think it's one sentence. Yeah. I think her action plan is one sentence. Frustrating. Um, you know, for the highest level of government to be able to produce that much that little detail but it's a beautiful day. ad isn't it it's a beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful ad, ad and it's on a nice shiny piece of cardboard and and you're paying for that because yeah. that is the priority of this government it's the priority of the last government it's been the priority of governments for a while now i will say though now i want to ask you kind of from your party perspective um now that she's talking about healthcare reform specifically about adding private health care so Kind of, again, she hasn't expressed how she does that. Now, most people, when they think, okay, private health care, and I've asked my friend's family about this, they think we're going to have a two-tier system. Right. So what that means is that they're going to have end consumers pay up front for costs not covered. Right. My idea of a private health care is that we're going to have private businesses charge the government for services that can be done more efficiently than the government can do. Right. So kind of like, where do you stand? Where's Alberta yeah. Party stand in terms of privatization? Okay, so we, 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 we always use these buzzwords, right? These yeah. privatization of healthcare because it elicits an, uh, an emotional response. And nobody wants uh, the, the first part of privatization, which is that you have to pay out of pocket to get the work done. Mm -hmm. No, we don't. But we also think you have to be practical and pragmatic about it. Um, you know, we have um, my mom, for as an example, you know, had cataract surgery here a year or two ago, right? That was done in a so-called private clinic, but every doctor is a private enterprise. And so the practice, the, the, it's, it's who pays for it at the end of the day. And so it's access and who pays for it. And I am, I am in favor of any initiative that um, allows me to go into a, a get a service done that I'm paying for through my taxation and through the budget, through the budget um, to healthcare. Uh, and that speeds up the time for me to get that service. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot to say about, uh, about efficiency of some consistent services. I mean, I've talked to doctors who've run hospitals about lab services and, you know, you have the NDP who wanted to make sure absolutely had to be public, no matter what you did, had to be publicly run, publicly owned, publicly administered. And then you get the UCP who says you've got to be privatized no matter what, everything. And when I talk to an administrator at a, at a big hospital here in Alberta about it, um, they say, you know, we need both. Absolutely. The efficiency of, of you and I going in and getting our annual physical at my, at my age, definitely have to get it annually. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so you go in and you get that done. And if you wait a few weeks for the results, it's pretty no problem. But if I go into the cancer center and I've got a stage three or four issue, I need results now and I need the cutting edge stuff, right? I don't need, you know, the basic stuff. So he said, you need both. You need access to both, except we can't see yeah. the practicality of that solution. And I think so when it comes to um, a uh, an outside entity with a different name on their board doing hip surgeries or uh, cataract surgeries or those kinds of things and they're really good at it and they're really efficient at it and we can afford it from a from a perspective that you know it's we're, we're not getting ripped off by that system yeah then why aren't we doing it it makes no sense to me not to pursue those initiatives I, li- I like what you mentioned there with like every physician is a contract contractor and I a lot of people say, Oh, we have a public health care system in Alberta. And what I like to say is, no, we have a publicly funded private health care system. Yeah. Um, like you said, the NDP want everything publicized, especially like the laboratory services. And, you know, it is so difficult, though. I did try to start a nursing business. Okay. I wanted to do uh, IV antibiotics. Okay. Very simple. Okay. IV antibiotics routinely are done through emergency rooms. Okay. Especially in rural areas. Right. Very expensive to run a patient through an emergency room to get an IV antibiotic. Mm-hmm. So you could create a private clinic, pretty cheap, and I bet you I could do it for 25% or less of the cost the Alberta government is doing currently, but there is no way to get paid. Yeah, that's a problem for sure. So I've been waiting for Daniel Smith to release this action plan on reform. How is she going to incorporate, like you said, outside entities, private corporations, implementing them or incorporating them into our healthcare system. Yeah. And the only thing she's got so for us, like 5,000 knee and hip surgeries in Calgary. Yeah. I think that's it. Um, again, mind boggling. How many staff work in yeah. there? <laughs> no, exactly. How many people are thinking about this type of stuff? Yeah. Uh, I, I think, and I think one of the things about, you know, this whole conversation about private versus public and, and who's worried about what? And is, is my line going to get bigger? You know, we hear the arguments about uh, resources. And I, and I think that's a very real argument. I think resources are scarce. And, you know, I think we have to be, we have to be careful about that, that we don't um, migrate a lot of services away from especially urgent care. Yeah. Because urgent care, obviously, uh, you know, something AHS, they really do very well. Urgent care itself and acute care, I think they do those well. But if they were to lose resources, I think that would be a problem. So we have to be, we have to be thoughtful about it but I think we have to you know tell Albertans what actually we're talking about right like you know it's it's it again it's great to say you know we're getting we're going to add 30,000 surgeries a year or 10,000 surgeries a year that's going to move you along the list explain it a little bit more to us please how is you know how are the contracts let out you know are they getting paid like what is the service cost um in in a in a, in a hospital versus this um uh, different building you know, yeah. uh, how does that work? And let us help us out to understand that. Take us through it. You know, that takes a little more time and effort. And um, maybe it's not as uh, instantly newsworthy. But I can tell you what, in the long term scheme of things, you get a better understanding. The electorate, the people of Alberta understand what's going on. They they um, they uh, accept they have to decide if they accept that 
um, solution for the problem that they think they're facing. And, you know, if we're doing a good job, we're paying attention to what people are saying. I think that's what ends up happening. Yeah. But, um, you know, they, they uh, certain political leaders love to create that division that, you know, I'm on this side of the fence and you're on that side of the yeah. fence. And that allows them because in Alberta, we only need 40 some percent to win a majority government. So really six out of 10 of us, they don't even care if you like them or not. They only want the four out of the 10 to like them. And so they can say these statements in a certain way to create that situation for themselves. And uh, it's maybe good politics in the sense of you get to win, but it's really bad governing and it's really bad for the future of the province. Yeah. Division. I think that segues really nicely into another topic. But first, I want to ask you a point blank question. Sure. Nurse practitioners. Yeah, I, I think they should. there should be a way for them to be able to do it. I've, I've seen clinics operating underneath in PCNs. Uh, you know, I know of one situation up north that was actually getting paid. I think there's a great value to them in a team system of approach, how you approach these based on the resources around you. And, and just to, to illustrate that for you, mm -hmm. in, a, in communities across this province, you know, you, you have 10,000 people to deal with, right? And you, you have these issues. When um, communities look around for a, to solve a problem, they, they don't get to pay for expertise to come in and fix it. They take what they have and they leverage it to the next degree. We have all of these nurse practitioners who have a scope of practice that would create a lot of uh, situations, particularly in family care, yeah. Uh, Pre-emergent care, whatever you want to call it, you know, preventative care, yeah. maintenance. I'm not sure. What primary, the right, primary, primary care. care. Yeah. Uh, some capacity. They're trained to do it. Yeah. Um, their scope of practice is well defined, and uh, yet we are unwilling. And again, you know, uh, whether it's a doctor saying no, it's um, whether it's the college or whoever's arguing about these AMA. spaces. Yeah, whoever there's spaces that they're worried about. Yeah. The fact is, is that we need to get in a room. And look, you know, the AMA, the nurses, uh, the other allied health professionals, the government, the hospital administrators, they exist for one purpose, to deliver health care to a patient. They keep talking that it's patient-centered care, but when they have the actual conversation, they revert back to protecting their own territory. This is not, a, this is not acceptable. And we have a government that's led them to think that your territory will be protected. And that is, again... Stick to your goal. Your goal is to drive people out of the system to get them away from emergent care to make sure they're well taken care of and take the stress off the system. But they keep answering to um, going back to what, whether they've promised it, whether they've, you know, said, hey, don't worry about it. We're not going to do this. So don't worry about what we're going to, you know, it's ridiculous. We need to get in a room and fix the problem. And I would defy anybody who is just a, a regular person in their context of being a community person who wants their quality of life to be better, whether you're a doctor, nurse, nurse practitioner, if you got in a room and said, hey, what's the best way to provide health care for our community? The model would be a lot better. Yeah. But we, we're, we won't do it. So I don't you, know why again. You said, so again, <laughs> the biggest problem is getting paid. Nurse practitioners cannot bill for services. They have to be employed by HS. Yeah. Or under direct supervision of a physician, Yes. At, because the physician can bill, but a primary care clinic is not going to hire an NP, take money out of their bottom line for services that they can't bill for. So nurse practitioners need to be able to bill for services to build infrastructure in our primary care system, serve more people. Yeah. The president of AMA have, has wrote, had written a letter saying he doesn't want to further silo health professionals into 
different areas. He wants, it says, nurse practitioners have their place, but in a team. So he wants them always in a team environment with physicians, but that's highly limiting to enabling them to create this infrastructure. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good point. We, so when, especially when it comes to private practice, not like the government's handing out, okay, we're going to give uh, Sherwood Park $5 million. We're going to tell, open up a clinic, have a physician, 10 nurse practitioners, yeah. make it family practice. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Too complicated. So if we a nurse practitioner can bill, they can go get a lease on a building, and operate very similar to a family practice. Yeah. Um, and the physician won't have to be there taking money out of their bottom line to pay them a salary. Right. So would you what's your opinion on being on implementing or making sure that nurse nurse practitioners specifically can bill AMA so that they can develop these private practices? Yeah, no, no I think it has a lot of potential. Yeah. Like I said, I was in a small community where I saw a nurse practitioner was doing that very same thing. Now, I'm not sure the model of how she was getting paid. I, you know, I, I, it slips my mind exactly how that worked. Yeah. But she was essentially, you know, walk in the door uh, and her office was right in the, the city or the town hall or the village office or whatever. Yeah. And they had, um, you know, the whole clinical space set up. Not sure exactly how she was being paid, but she was being paid for services rendered, yeah. just like a doctor would. So the potential is there. Um, and I, I and and when I when I refer to team, I don't mean team that there's a hierarchy, okay. but that there's an actual approach to pre presenting the issues in a community. So, so for me, the way I look at what a team approach is and how I've kind of in my own community, how I've talked to some of the doctors about it, is that you know you have uh, ten thousand people without a family doctor. So what does that mean? So that means roughly, you know, on a patient. Um, uh, panel, whatever you want to call it, you know, roughly a thousand people, give or take 800, a thousand is kind of a bit of a norm. They seem to be, it's not, not perfectly ideal, but it seems to be manageable. Mm -hmm. So then you need, basically you need 10 bodies to take care of those 10,000 people. Yeah. Now, do those 10 bodies all have to be MDs? In my mind, a team approach is, hey, you know what? We have five nurse practitioners here. We could use those five nurses. How do we implement them within our whole system? Yeah. And and if if payment is the problem, uh, but I, I don't know that's the only problem. But payment if the payment is a problem, then we should be working on that. Because at the end of the day, again, we have to drive the solution for the communities. We have to drive a solution for those patients. And uh, and to me, a team approach is: Hey, we have twenty one doctors. They can do this much. We have. Five nurse practitioners, they can do this much. We have uh, RNs and PCNs and, and uh, LPNs. How can how much can they do? Does our can our system support this? Mm -hmm. What do we need, right? Instead of isolating them and saying, well, you can't do really the scope of practice because for your, you can't get paid. Yeah, um, that's that seems to me a technical issue. Although it's become a political issue. A hundred percent, right? A political issue, and it should be a technical issue. Yeah. We're supposed to be delivering a service here for a patient. We keep saying that's what AHS keeps saying to us. That's what the province keeps saying to us. That's not the case. We have way more political consideration in healthcare yeah. than we do practical consideration. And the Alberta party wants to change that. And you know, we're, I'm willing to take the flack for it because um, uh, I, at the end of the day, we need to trade true to our mission, which is to provide services for Albertans who are paying taxes for those services. And uh, everything else has to be moved around and build some collaboration and consensus. Um, and, but at the end of the day, whoever has the authority has to eventually say, hey, you know what, we got to move forward. Uh, let's give this a try. The worst thing that can happen is you make an error. You don't get it quite right. Yeah. And then guess what? Be smart and brave enough to walk it back and go the other way. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of options here. 
And we just, standing still is not one of them, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, 100%. It's such a highly politicized issue for absolutely no reason. And you could probably say definitely that the Alberta government does not seem to be focused on just delivering that mission of providing care to its citizens. No, they want to keep people in line. They yeah. want to keep people voting for them. So that's the primary consideration. They don't want to deal with uh, they don't want to deal with noise in election from whoever because there's a solution that doesn't quite fit their you know personal self interest. The fact is, again, what is our goal? Our goal is to provide health care for people, and we should be doing everything we can as the overarching governing body in this province to do that. And um, too much political consideration means we do too little. Period. Yeah. And uh, that's that's really unfortunate. Yeah, I think you mentioned division. I want to segue into that, especially division with healthcare um, politics, COVID isolations, mandating people to stay home, lockdowns. Yeah, that became very defi- like, uh, yeah, like UCP versus NDP. NDP pro lockdown, UCP no lockdowns. That became a huge reason for people to go and cast their vote because they're so um, polarized. You know, these people are polarized. They either pro lockdown or they don't want to see a lockdown ever again. And when they went to the ballots, they knew that voting for, or they will know in the future, seven months from now, based off of how Daniel Smith has, you know, said in her press conferences, there will be no more lockdowns. We will not ask you to wear a mask in public versus NDP pro lockdowns and rewarding. We'll, yeah. we'll let you wear a mask. So in that interview that I was referring to that was on YouTube, you guys were saying that you want. It's difficult because you guys are saying you want to have this community-based kind of decentralized approach, like really getting what do the citizens want. But I think for myself as a voter, that is such a polarized issue. I want to know if I vote for you, if, please, no more COVID. <laughs> this hopefully stays under control. Yeah. But if some other bug comes around yep. or if COVID mutates and gets worse again, what is the Alberta party going to do in terms of lockdowns, mask mandations and things like that, that's going to affect our lives, the lives of small business owners and things like that? What are you going to do? So, so I can only go by experience and I'll, I'll so I, you know, I'll take a little bit of time to answer this. So first of all, I don't think we should be making political decisions about a lockdown, like, or a mandatory lockdown or, or that we're going to make sure everybody does this or everybody does that. That's, yeah. you know what? Um, and, and we shouldn't be taking again, a political temperature that to see whether we should do it or not, or whether we should be allowing it or not, or whether we should be instituting it or not, or paying for people to get shots and things like that because that serves a political purpose it's ridiculous so i'm going to tell you my experience um and, and i'll tell you why i think we could follow it through first of all there was a uh, emergency plan for pandemic in alberta it existed and i've read it and if we'd have followed that and and been proactive about information i think for the most part albertans would have been far more on side with it but for whatever reason they chose a different path way to do it right um, so when it comes to health, uh, I, you know, and we're not perfect, but I, but I think science has to lead the way. I think what we know is what we know, and, and we have to allow professionals to tell us how to do it. Um, where, I, where, where I change and where I say, you know, that there has to be some local input into it, I'll give you, the, give you some examples. So okay. when I was Mayor Brooks, we had the very worst uh, infection rate of COVID in North America that I know of today. So over 4,400 uh, uh, 4,400 infections per 100,000 people. 
So when we went, when we were going through this, this was early in the early in the pandemic. There were no vaccines. There were, you know, uh, we only knew the basics, right? We were distancing, and, and things were closing, and things. Um, but we didn't really explain to people what was going on. What what mm. was the, you know, we. So what we did was we informed people regularly, daily, about what was going on. We corrected misinformation. And we told them, um, we invited them into the conversation to say, hey, you know what, the only way for us to move past this was to um, to band together, follow the rules, get the infection rate down so that we can have our lives back again. The problem was there was never any reward for good behavior, in my mind, that when you had places like, so we went from 4,400 per 100,000 down to zero in about nine weeks, if I remember right. Uh, we did that, but the city paid for isolation spaces for families that couldn't. We we had a lot of proactive community help, helping people bringing food to them so they weren't going outdoors and, and spreading COVID. Um, we had uh, lots of people step up. We had the first mass testing, so we actually understood what was going on in our community instead of speculating. You were mass, we you were, were N95 yeah, fit testing people. No, no, we were um, mass testing. Mass, oh. mass test. We tested 3,500 people in three days. Oh, mass testing. Okay, gotcha. Through a drive-through testing yeah. site. And then we were giving their information. We're very diverse, a community, nine different languages. We were making sure people understood what to do if they tested positive that day. Because the AHS rate at the time, they said, well, we're at 1%. Well, the testing proved for the people that came through that we were over nine, which means we're probably 14 or 20. And once we knew that, though, people stepped up, right? The the, the industry, the big industry, our, our packing plant, which is a uh, three thousand people working at it, they stepped up. They helped community. We had multi generational housing, like I said, we had to provide isolation spaces for people so we could step down. We had people volunteering to to babysit kids while parents went into stores. And um, what we didn't recognize, in my mind overall, is that you know all, all the things that people were doing. If you remember it at the time. There was kind of the off and on again about how many people you could have and all of this stuff. Uh, but they kept changing the rules provincially. Um, and there were sections of the province that, that were doing better at this and worse at this. Uh, you'll recall even at one time, we thought they were going down the right road. Calgary and Brooks were delayed in that one May of opening up, yeah. uh, May, June, the summertime, because our infections rates were higher. And myself and the mayor, uh, we agreed with that. That made sense. We thought, okay, this is, they're finally getting on the right track. You know, they're going to, when the dam bursts or looks like it's going to explode, we're going to send troops in there and deal with that issue. And then when it's somewhere else, no, we, we didn't do that after that. We, um, again, a practical approach, Albertans would have understood that. They would have said, hey, you know what? Our infection rate's really high. We have to do something in our area. That means, you know, we do have to shut down things for a few days. We do have to keep the crowds down to a minimum. We can't have events. Uh, but you up there in the Northeast where you got like no one's getting COVID because no one's, you know, you don't have to deal with that. Same thing with small business and restaurants. They were the safest place to be in my community yeah. at the time. Um, uh, and then we didn't do the things in my mind, again, uh, that you, you have to follow, again, the science of it. Ventilation and air was a big deal. Um, we were shutting down schools, but we weren't investing in any ways to make it safer to be in schools. Um, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff that we did that wasn't consistent and didn't wasn't understandable. And when something's not understandable, it's very difficult for people to adhere. And then, of course, it was always going to be over in July. It was going to be over at Stampede. It was going to be over. And, and we weren't being honest with people. We were, uh, 
again, I, you know, I don't know the ultimate answer for this because I would hate to be, I'm, I'm never going to put myself in a situation as a leader and say, hey, under no circumstances will ever, you know, lock down. I don't know that. When, um, because uh, I don't, I don't know what's coming around the corner. I think we need to be better prepared for it. Yeah. I think we have to have a, a process that makes sure Albertans are informed and understanding. I think we have to have rigorous infrastructure in place that actually allows us to advance that. And we have to listen to people on the ground that are saying, hey, so how can you make my community better through this? My experience in the emergency room, the changing of rules, it was getting difficult. The frustration of the parents and the children. Wait, when can my kid go back to school? Yeah. When can I go back to work? They had no idea. Wait, I'm vaccinated, but I don't have my booster. Does that still mean five days or 10 days? Or is it 14 days? The, it was changing so frequently and so much that people had no idea what to do. And that's where a lot of the frustration came. Yeah. And I don't think the government did a very good job of delivering that information to the entire province and making sure people understood what was going on and why. Yeah. It just came out, oh, we're going to change it from 10 days to five days. Why? Where is this? In, is this WHO? Is this the CDA? Is this, where are you getting this? information to change it from 10 days to five days and then they said well if you're symptomatic it has to be 10 days yeah well what's symptomatic now a nurse can tell you what symptomatic means is the average person you know what symptomatic means probably not if you're still coughing or tired you're symptomatic you go to 10 days what ends up happening people think like oh i don't have a fever anymore i'm going to go out you can infect other people yeah and it's it's yeah. it is a complicated issue. It is it is complicated, yeah. but and you know we can only do as good as we can do. The problem is we were never given really the opportunity to do that. You know we spent more time again, and this is this is the government. I think the government way of doing things is that if I make an announcement that's looked at proactive, and I'm trying to protect you, or I'm trying to let you free, you know whatever your messaging for the day happens to be, then you do that. You know we had staff at the city of Brooks working on those Thursday and Friday nights whenever they came out with the new rules, trying to administer, trying to understand what they meant for our citizens so that when they called and said, hey, it's, you know, the same thing. Uh, it says I can have like 20 people under 17 in my house, but when they go outside, I can have 100. Yeah. Like, is that right? And, you know, we had to understand all that stuff. And again, if it doesn't translate into like, why are we doing that? You know, what's, how does this advance our health care? How does this make me safer? Yeah. Then people say, forget about it. You know, you're not even, you're not paying attention to what's going on. You can't even manage your own problem. And so I think, again, but it stems from the fact that I want to make an announcement. I want to look like I'm in charge. I want to make sure that people feel like I'm doing the right thing or somehow politically I get an advantage. Instead of just reverting back to what's right, proper, practical, uh, trusting people to do the right things. And you know what? Not everybody's going to do the right thing. Yeah. Accept that. That's just life. Uh, but if we um, are, are uh, thoughtful and considerate of people and we're, we're paying attention and we're giving them the information they want, I think more people adhere, more people want to protect their neighbors and their friends and themselves, then don't. That would fly in the face. And we, we could have had that, and we did for a very little while, but quickly evaporated. How do you think Jason Kenney handled it? I think he handled it poorly. At the beginning, he handled it very well, to be honest, because uh, at a time, uh, I think he was working pretty well with community leaders at the very beginning of it. Very unknown. People were kind of, you know, informing what they knew, and I think that was informing. And I think at the time, uh, I think the chief medical officer of health at the time seemed to have a little bit more um, say in terms of, like, what information was going out. People were 
there was a lot of information. Like yeah. if you, in my mind, I remember there was a ton of stuff going out every day and people were starting to kind of, uh, was if you wanted to know, you could know. Yeah. And then I think as time went on, I think that started to slip away. And then decisions were made like, well, we're going to open up and we're saying, okay, well, what's that based on? Um, or we're going to close down. What's that based on? Everybody has to do this. And no one understood. And I think that was the decline. And, uh, and then it got to the point where, you know, political pressures and you know, created that problem, I think, on his own. So I don't know about you, but he always looked confused. Whenever he was speaking, he always looked <laughs> unsure. Well... But I think Did that's you get that true. impression? But, and, and you know what? I give, I give the leaders at the time, yeah. you know, a lot of, a, a, quite a bit of rope in terms of, you know, I think, I think people were confused. Yeah. But I mean, you know, unless the doctor's a, a medical officer of health, it would be confusing. Yeah. And so you have to think about who, who should be carrying those, those files. Th- so yeah. it's making those decisions. Um, I, I said last night at, at the launch for our, our, our candidate here, uh, in, in Sherwood Park, I said, you know what? The, the Alberta party is smarter. We're smart. And the reason we're smart is because we recognize there's smarter people that should be doing some of these jobs. Yeah. And I think that's, that's true to the point, too. I think, um, I think at the beginning, if you remember the beginning of the pandemic, the chief medical officers of health, because I think they were being so forward because I think they were so much ahead of the curve on information than everybody else was. Um, they were allowed uh, to do that, and I think people held them in, in, in reasonable um, consideration as a very legitimate source of information and we we should be paying attention and then as as the as covid became to be a political thing versus a medical thing uh, i think that deteriorated and we we got where we got we have the divisions we got Um, and again it's really really sad to see politicians turn a medical problem into a political either advantage for them or a disadvantage for somebody else um, what we, again, we, we forget about what we're there for. We're there to serve people, not ourselves. And until we kind of get to that point, we're going to continue to see a lot more of these divisive issues come up because it it serves people to get to their, their 40. Yeah. So just to bring that back, make it one phrase. So the Alberta party isn't against lockdowns, uh, but you'll follow the advice of the professionals, the people who know better. Absolutely. The politicians. politicians, And the politicians don't know. There's the professionals, and I think communities have to be part of that conversation. You know, I I think we have to do it lockstep. And you know what? That's hard work. That's harder work than sitting in a room with your uh, political advisors deciding a course of action. Because you have to actually work with others that might not be your stripe, that might have different views. That's hard work. You have to do that or you get poor results. What do you do as a leader? Let's say you meet with a group of people and they all say, I don't want a vaccine. I don't want to wear a mask. I want to go eat at my restaurant. Yeah. And then beside you, you have your chief officer, uh, chief medical officer, and they're saying, no, we have to lock down. But you have an overwhelming amount of people that are saying, I don't want to lock down. I accept the risks. I will deal with the repercussions. As a leader, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, so again, in absolute terms, I don't think you can answer that. Okay. I, I don't think it's fair. Because, you know, when I was, I was a, the chair of a, a, a lodge, so seniors facility, right? Average age, 87 years old, and lots of, um, lots of risk, right? We okay. knew that was a high-risk group. Okay. 87 years old, average age. And um, we came to the point where we said as a group, 
you know what, if you want to work here, you, we got to know you're negative. Yeah. So there's two things you can do. At the time, this is what we knew. We didn't know later on that, that uh, you could still spread COVID even if you were vaccinated, right, because of the mutations or whatever. But anyway, at the time, this is what we knew. And we said either you need to get tested to come in so that we know because, you know, this isn't about you. This is about protecting the people you're working for. Exactly. And yeah. so we always tried to come up with an option. I don't think we were very considerate of everybody's view in terms of trying to come up with an option. My mind, uh, when it came to restaurants and bars, is that, you know, you should, I, I always thought, you should take on the risk. You've got the seating. You've got know what works in your business plan. Mm -hmm. You know what the health advice is. Um, I often said that if you followed the rules in a restaurant at the time that they were there, you know, separate tables, blah, blah, blah. You didn't have an outbreak per se that originated there. Why shouldn't you continue to operate? That yeah. was kind of my first friend. And I was advocating for my community, my work community saying, you know, if they're following the rules and they're actually controlling the infection to the extent it could be controlled at that time, yeah. uh, knowing the rules we had, isn't that, isn't that all we can ask of them? Right. And, uh, um, I think there were op I think there were other options. Um, I don't think they were very explored because it was going to get messy. And guess what? It is. People are messy. Um, for whatever reason, you don't want to take a vaccine, and I'm not going to argue with you about whether you should or shouldn't. Although I think there are some instances where uh, it's proven beyond a reasonable doubt that it has to be done. Um, you know, we talk about um, polio, polio, and and uh, whatever the other ones that you take for school, right? Tetanus, tetanus, tetanus yeah. pertussis. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. without a doubt. I think, I think we have to look at that and say that's absolute. You, you can't, you can't put you in a in a situation to risk an entire population because of that. Absolutely. Go and you know, here's what's your other option. There's other options for you to go to school then, but you can't. You know, I think we have to, we have to do that when it's beyond a reasonable doubt. I think COVID was, you know, a real test for us as people. Um, because it was very unknown and again, because the information started to get very, very scattered and limited the further we went into it, it's yeah. very difficult for us. And uh, I think it proved one thing um, in particular, uh, we're better when we all are operating from the same sheet of music, that we're, we're playing the same song, we understand what we're trying to do. And it really deteriorates quickly when we try to speak to multiple audiences about it, is that this is the rules. and. Um, you know, I, in my mind, as I, it would be a real test, I can't imagine how difficult it was, even if you were motivated by the very best interests yeah. um, to deal with it, considering uh, no one expected it to last for two years plus um, oh and God. going on still. So uh, I think it's complicated, but I think at the end of the day, you've got to kind of um, put yourself in the front of that and say, you know, what is the best course of action for me today, tomorrow? And, and stick to that. And you know what? You might not survive it politically, uh, but let's hope your communities do. I mean, that just happens. So uh, let's be leaders, real leaders. Yeah. So we have, uh, so we can transition. Let's talk a little bit about the just transition. Oh, okay. <laughs> transition into just transition. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a big topic right now in the news. Danielle Smith is really, really, like you said, headlines everywhere it's yeah. killing oil and gas it's going to destroy a province um what do you what do you think about that so i think i think a little context is necessary to start with so first of all let's 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 be tr let's be true here um oil production and oil and gas production in alberta has steadily gone up since 2000 and I, I don't know go back it continues to rise there's a demand for that the industry manages that in the context of the world market the price 
the political situation. Um, I think when it comes to uh, transition, the fact is is that the oil oil and gas has lost thirty five thousand jobs since twenty fourteen for all kinds of reasons. Uh, some of it's uh, you know the lack of investment in my companies here, but a lot of it's automation, a lot of it's efficiency. Um, companies are doing it differently, right? Um, so I think that the key to a transition is that we have to recognize it's always changing. We're not extracting oil the same way we were in 1950 as we are in 2022. Um, oil companies are responding to their marketplace that allows them to be advantaged in their marketplace. Uh, you see, you know, we, we can sit down and uh, people a lot smarter than me can debate about whether ESG is a good thing for businesses and companies. But the fact is the market is demanding that. They want to know. Um, the fact is, is that the market, when it comes to uh, carbon-based fuels and, uh, and emissions, they're demanding action. They want that to happen, and they're demanding their governments and their companies to, to do that. Companies aren't going to be left behind. The only thing that gets in their way in Alberta is the government of Alberta. They're, they're the ones getting in the way. There is an opportunity here for Alberta to lead in energy. And it's not an either-or conversation. It's an and conversation. The fact is depending on who you listen to, there's going to be demand for uh, regular, you know, oil and gas in its traditional form. Um, you know, some, some are saying it'll peak at 2035, some say it's going to peak at 2040, some, you know, somewhere in there. Yeah. But it's going to rise for the next little while because that's just where we are. Um, and the companies are being, um, you know, the companies that are, are going to be advantaged are the ones that are reducing their emissions. So then you look at what is the government's role in, allowing our industry to lead. And there's two things it is. One is regulation. Okay. And one is making sure that their investments are protected. I've talked to large industries in Alberta and we talk about, you know, how affordability affects us. So why don't we have more thermal based power as an example? Well, the reason we do is because the carbon capture side of it, there's no certainty. You know, you spend a billion dollars on a plant to create electricity for us and that stabilizes the grid. But they know that they, they're trying to get to net zero by 2030, which, by the way, I don't think is realistic in the electrical grid. Um, but they're trying to get to net zero. The only way they can do that which is with carbon capture. They, the, the technology exists, but that's a significant investment. Right now, the, there's no jurisdiction in Alberta that's guaranteed a price on carbon. Now, in the United States, who we always, we always seem to make fun of environmentally from here, they have a 12-year, my understanding is they have a 12-year guarantee on the price of carbon for companies that are investing in carbon capture. So now they see a horizon for payback. So if we were to provide that, and what government, what industry wants in order to move us through into uh, being continuing to be the energy leader, I think we are, mm -hmm. is they just need certainty. And what they don't want is they don't want one government saying we're going to do this all the way over here, move the needle to no taxes or no carbon tax or no this or no that, to one that says, oh, we're going to do this and double and triple it. The, the, they can deal with whatever situation they are. Industry's way more nimble and adaptable than government is. But they just need to know. Yeah. I've run into uh, a lot of um, leaders in the industry, people that are, are waiting for the opportunities to get this done. And, and they're, they're asking just for certainty, regulatory certainty and price certainty on, on the carbon capture side. And I think those two things should be done tomorrow. And they'll do what we need to do. And we will get renewables. We'll find ways to turn bitumen into other products. We'll, they'll do that because it'll be profitable for them. And it'll serve their, it'll serve their shareholders. 
Um, but if our jurisdiction is uncertain about the base level things, about the regulation piece, about the price of things, uh, they'll move to jurisdictions where there is certainty that makes sense. So arguing about it, about whether uh, Trudeau makes his, again, his pol political statement that, you know, he's serving his, um, his base by saying, you know, we're really committed to, to, to climate change action and, and this is how we're going to do it. He, he's, you know, he, I don't know what his people are telling him. Maybe he lives in a world that no one else, the, the facts speak for themselves. Yeah. This isn't going to happen tomorrow. I don't care how much money you pour you, into it. You know, Elon Musk himself, the guy who has uh, owns Tesla, he's a massive promoter of renewable energies. He was on Joe Rogan podcast. He talked about it over. He's like, we still, he said, we still need oil and gas. We still need, like, it's not going to go away. The thing yeah. is, is that we should be investing in renewable energy to lead us towards that future. Obviously, we cannot go to 100% renewable energy tomorrow. No. Everyone still has petrol cars. Everyone still has combustion engines, especially industry, like I said, the electrical grid, everything. We need oil and gas. This net zero by 2030 is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I, it's impossible financially. We, You and I couldn't afford power if they tried to do that. What's the rush? Yeah. I mean, that's the big thing. It's like, what is the rush? Why don't we just focus, I think myself, especially when I hear like carbon emissions and the environment, like 100% car like carbon emissions must keep our CO2 emissions down. But the other thing I want to hear more of is protecting our lakes. You know, Alberta's lakes are filled with yep. green, like blue-green algae almost all year round. There's maybe a half a dozen lakes. The fishing in the lakes has gone down. When I was a kid, I'd go fishing for perch, walleye, whatever. Remember, you could keep two or three walleye a person, I think. Yep. Now you need tags. You know, we have, like, what about our environment? And the thing as well is this federal carbon tax. It's been in place for how many years now? Two years? Yeah. Two or three. Two or three. Three, or three four, years? Yeah. Where, where's the money? Yeah. Um, why don't we have a solar farm outside Fort Saskatchewan? We must have paid so much carbon tax. Why are my Why is my utility bill not being supplemented by a solar farm financed by the government from all this carbon tax they've taken? So those are really good, really good areas. So first of all, on on the carbon tax. So um, on the uh, so there's two levels, right? There's the industrial level, and then there's the the the, the consumer level. So one of the things that we would do, the Alberta Party would do, is we would repatriate the carbon levy the courts have ruled we have to have one right because of whatever we would repatriate it and, and redo it to alberta's advantage so um you know taking it back and then you know we have rebates going we'd make sure the right people got the right rebates and then if there was other up if there if there was all the money should go back it because it it, it at, at the base level it doesn't matter you have to drive to work you have to do those things we can't you have to heat your house None of those things should be a penalty in terms of that. You can't avoid that, right? Yeah. So on on those things, we should be that money should be going back first of all. Like it, it just should. It just doesn't make sense. Um, when it comes to things, um, uh, and and then whatever, if there was any leftover, which I anticipate there wouldn't be anyway, I think it would be a net zero in terms of like the the rebate back and forth, which again speaks to how efficient it actually is and whether that's the right way to go. Yeah. That's a debate for another day, but we are stuck with it. The courts have said we've got to apply one; it's legal. Um, so how do we do it best to advantage Alberta? And the best way to do that is to repatriate, take control of it, and then use it for Alberta's advantage to whatever that happens to be. Um, we haven't fully, fully fleshed that out, but we certainly think that um, for those um, situations where you can't avoid the tax, you can't moderate your behavior in order to avoid the tax because that's kind of what the design is. Um, uh, there's, there's better solutions for that. So secondly, and then when it comes to the rest of the environment, for instance, on coal, 
um, the Alberta Party has said, you know, we accept the founding of the, the, the coal group that um, really rallied against uh, coal mining in Eastern Slope, so that has to stop. Um, and uh, would we say stop forever? I don't know, maybe in 100 years, somebody will figure out a way to get the coal out and use it for something. Yeah. But for now, there's none. Uh, when it comes to the other thing is we got to reinvest, again, reinvesting now for the future is something that a lot of governments have shied away from. And, and I think it's based on one thing in particular. One is uh, what, where do we prioritize our spending? Albertans care about going fishing. They care about their uh, lakes and they care about their prairies and they care about their forests. Um, you know, I, I know people that those departments continually to get cut. They continue to lose people. Uh, there's, um, you know, continual lack of investment in those areas. What are we doing about it? You know, and um, so that's one thing. We have to make sure that we're prepared to deal with that. It's one of Alberta's calling cards, our pristine, supposed pristine environment, which, like you said, is you're speaking to the degradation of it in several areas. How do we reinvest and get that realized again? Secondly, is that we have to go back to what, um, you know, the wealth of the province was created on. And, and there's there's some detrimental effect there, too. And I think we have to look at, uh, you know, how does the polluter contribute and how do they actually mitigate? And I think we've had some rules in place that we haven't enforced. I don't think we've been um, smart enough to adapt and and deal with companies that create situations for us that cause this long-term damage. Um, and we have to be tougher on that because there's a long-term game to be played here. And if, uh, and again, I think, uh, I think industries understand it, but their industry also has a, a different master than we do. Yeah. Their master is to make sure they're maximizing their return. And if they have to invest in dealing with the bad effects of the industry they have, that takes away from the bottom line, they have to deal with that. But um, I, I, I think there's a place for that. I think the polluter has to pay in Alberta along a, a whole bunch of lines. I think there's um, areas um, in production, whether it doesn't matter what industry, in coal or oil and gas extraction, I think that there's we've, we've got a plan in place. We just don't enforce it. We don't deal with it. And it's creating some long-term effects. And uh, again, people are going to tell us what they want. And the government is for that purpose, right? And sometimes you're going to have to tell them, for instance, you know, maybe in parks and environment, hey, there aren't enough people on the ground to do this right. We're going to have to invest in this. This is going to cost you more money. Do you want that to... seems like a great use of carbon tax money. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, and, I think, and I think that's, that's in fact, how we have to proceed. Uh, yeah. Those aren't going to be, you know what, the podium politics for something like that, they're not, they're not highly valuable, to be honest. They're not highly valuable. In the middle of the term to say, we're going to spend more money on this, because of that, uh, because again, you're not going to have all of a sudden all your lakes be cleaned up in a matter of weeks. You're not going to have all well, all the well sites reclaimed, you know, and, and back to its original state in a, in a matter of days or weeks. This is a long-term problem with a long-term solution. But like I said before, when it comes to like healthcare, if it comes to anything, we got to start now and do the right thing um, because delaying it's only causing us problems. And the Alberta party isn't pretending we have every answer to every question because we don't um, when it comes right down to it I don't even you know uh, some of the solutions that we're proposing might not be workable even in a short term or, or a longer term basis but I think our thinking about it is right we're saying the problem isn't something that we can fix tomorrow so why stand there and say you can let's be at least honest about that point and say hey this is this is going to take us a while 
and we need you to work with us. You help us get there. And I, and I've, I've like I said, when I toured around the province and I've heard some of these issues, particularly around blue-green algae, because I visited a lot of summer villages and things like, like that that are dealing with, they've had solutions on the book sometimes for 30 years. It, you know, things they could do to mitigate this or to make it better that have never been acted on or invested in. You know, the local economies of these small towns, Boyle, um, Lac La Biche, all the, all the lakes, especially in the summertime, is where their economy flourishes. You, these blue-green algae, like, you can't go swimming, so it's like your recreational time as an Albertans decrease. Like, you just have to stay at home, watch more TV. Your economies in those local, you know, municipalities are suffering, and it just goes on and on. Yeah. And the blue-green algae, it really fits really really annoys everyone you know yeah because it's uh again it's something that could be mitigated right we know runoff causes the problem we know where the pollution comes from or the issues come from and we don't mitigate it and uh, you know again it it, it it's it, someone is going to pay because they haven't paid for a while in one way or the form the activity is going to be tempered or uh but but at the end at the end over the long term we're going to get what we need to get out of this and uh i I always, I, I tell people about when I tour the province, there's, there's, and this again comes back to kind of what we talked about at the beginning, why I'm doing provincial politics and instead of staying with municipal politics. Um, I could go to a community a year ago and they would have a problem, whatever it was, pipe in the ground, uh, building issue, whatever it was, they were trying to get an industry off the ground, whatever. If the municipality itself or the group of municipalities were the only ones that had all the levers, I could go back a year later and see action. Either the problem solved or they've got a plan and they're moving on it. If that problem involved another level of government, either the province or the federal government, almost without question, I could go back a year ago, year later, and they'd still be dealing with the province or the feds. Either regulatory, either the way they put out money, the way they deal with grants or priorities, right? Waiting, 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 waiting. Yeah. And this comes back to my other point why I'm here is that um, I think there's opportunities to take advantage of the incredible resource that's in communities, in local areas, um, to get some of these things advanced. And one of the things the province has to recognize is that, you know what, if you're the funder of it, then you should get out of the way. You don't need to hold on to everything yourself. You don't have to centralize everything. You don't have to make everything the same across the province. Communities are more than capable enough of solving problems on their own. They're just asking you to contribute in whatever way you want and then get out of the way of doing it. That's what Albertans want. We're good at it. Um, but we've seen successive governments, and it doesn't matter whether you're the NDP or the Conservatives. You know, Conservatives are supposed to espouse a smaller government unless... Uh, I, I haven't seen that happen. We have a cabinet twice the size it used to be. We have a massive uh, premier's office, like, what, I think, 34, 35 people. What it was, it might to get a piece of paper through 35 people. There's 35 people That's there. what I understand. I think our office is about 34, 35 staff. For... For the premier, that's what I get. I think I heard that when they were trying to, you know, do the email thing about who has emails for influencing what or whatever. Could you then... imagine the amount of work you could get done with a workforce of thirty-five people? Yeah, I was told at one time, and and you know, I take this for what it is. It's it's what I heard when I was president of AUMA. We often wrote letters to cabinet ministers and and the premier about issues or that our members had voted on or were wanting to take forward. Um, and specific outlines. And my understanding was that it went through six hands 
before it got back to us. So to me, right away, you're going, okay, well, uh, how efficient are we? I, I, I know uh, as president of AMA, we made offers uh, through red tape reduction to significantly reduce red tape in a very tangible way in order and by tangible i mean not removing words on the paper yeah i mean actually removing time from an effort or a cost from an effort and we were never ever contacted back again to do anything and this is why we're doing it because i don't think the province is is serious about getting uh, getting better and getting uh, out of people's lives so i want to ask you quickly so we can transition topics a little bit equalization payments quebec Ontario, you know, it's a, that's another polarizing topic we have in politics today. It's driving force a lot of people going to the ballots. Daniel Smith against equalization payments. They wanted essentially the federal government to force the pipelines through the Eastern provinces to be able to accept our money. Kind of where do you stand on that? What do you think about it? What plans would you have to push it so that we could get those pipelines through? Um, and do you think it's fair that they are getting this money essentially just yep take so it away. so so on two points i think first of all when you force anybody to do anything as we've talked about today yeah. you don't get a very good result it's never good and and i think you know when we uh, uh when i was president of ama again we did a we did a program called support canadian energy where we where the western and actually uh, saskatchewan manitoba alberta bc even was involved in it we we went to the federation of canadian municipalities which is the national body convention in Quebec and, and our goal was to talk to municipal politicians there. How'd it go? It went well. It went well. It went well. Wow. And for two reasons, I'll tell you why. Because one, they didn't know they didn't know how important energy was for us. And they didn't even know how important energy was for them in the sense that uh, they didn't um, they don't have that conversation. Oil and gas and, and the energy industry is daily conversation for us as Albertans. It just has. It's yeah. driven our economy. It's allowed us to have a pretty impressive standard of living. And, uh, you know, in, in Quebec, for instance, um, I remember talking to a mayor of a community just north of Montreal where the, the Energy East pipeline was supposed to go through. And I'm only telling you what he told me, but they had initially supported the route that was there in their community. And then the route changed without consultation so my understanding and so they rallied against it that's why you saw the big political from the, his perspective at least and that's a very that's a small rural community outside of montreal that said no you're not crossing our river that way or our whatever it was body of water um so there was some some misunderstandings there and i think the one the the conversation about energy overall Again, doesn't serve a political purpose for the prime minister of our country to talk about energy security in Quebec the way we need it, with the practical need of it, just like it isn't for us. And so, um, so for us as the Alberta Party, we would be um, working with the provinces because there are there are provinces and territories, and the prime minister and and the, and the federal government. They each have kind of sometimes, unfortunately, conflicting uh, goals when they shouldn't be. Um, so I think there's a there's there's there is a pathway to getting this done. There's corridors that already exist. There's um, opportunities for us to change the conversation instead of using it as a weapon. I mean, how, how many times did you, have you heard premiers in Alberta in the last couple of years? You know, say it's not our fault; it's their fault. 
I think they start every sentence like that. And that's not, that's not, <laughs> and, and to, to agree, don't get me wrong, yeah. they, they have a say. Yeah. Would, would we, would we as Albertans appreciate if Quebec said to us, hey, by the way, we're just going to run this power line through so we can sell electricity to, uh, to BC or Washington State or Alaska. Yeah. We just, hey, by the way, just, you have to do it. Yeah. You have to do it. You have to do it. You have to do it. I can tell you that we wouldn't like it either. However, um, if there was a different way to talk about that, but there isn't right now. And I think that's, a, that's, that's leadership, lack of it. And we would be advocating for a much different model. When it comes to equalization, um, you know, I think the, we, for, we have to understand that we pay more income tax because we make more in, in Alberta. Yep. And um, we can kind of argue about, uh, and I think that there are some problems with the formulas for equalization. I think we saw it in the you know the energy price drop that we had. I don't think it's responsive enough. It it doesn't deal with the unique needs of Alberta and Newfoundland in particular when it comes to market conditions for for our primary industry. I don't think we can respond quick enough to that. So I think there are some things that need to be fixed. Um, but uh, you know I I don't know enough about how you know I, I've seen kind of these massive formulas and people trying to explain to me why. Uh, Quebec gets what they want, get uh, gets what they get out of that, and how they move. But they also do. We want everything Quebec wants to be fair. They have the highest taxes. You know, I lived there for almost four years. Yeah, and a big driving force why I came back is the provincial income tax in Quebec is ten percent higher than in Alberta. Yeah, the wages for nursing. When I left there, I had I think six or seven job offers. Like that's how bad the situation was when I left five, six years ago now. Okay, and. The starting salary I would receive there was about $23, $24 an hour, plus 10% more income tax. Right. It was just unbelievable. The It was not sustainable uh, to live there as a young individual starting out their career, paying off student debt. Yeah. So that's a big thing, too, I want to ask yeah, you. Yeah, no, I got some so news there. The Canadian government has foregone the interest rates for federal student repayments yeah alberta has not done that yet so. yeah should be done tomorrow okay it's an affordability thing um i talked a little bit about access to post-secondary we have to lower the cost of total cost of post-secondary to attend and again that's an investment that we have to make we have to make it i don't know what that looks like in terms of whether you make tuitions lower or you invest more in universities or how that is but we have lots of work to do there but accessibility for students to get into university uh, or training of any kind is we, we have to do a better job of that. Yeah. We claim we want that, but we don't, again, we haven't done a bunch. We've just, you know, the costs have gone up. Um, and again, education's not political in the sense that uh, we should be mandating um, what people learn or how they learn it. We sh what we should be doing is empowering individuals yeah. to get the education they need uh, at the price point they can afford to get in it. I, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not for uh, like free education. I, I, I don't think I'm there, although there's some compelling arguments for it. But I am, uh, I am on the other side saying that if, if you've got the ambition and, and you have the high school grades to get into a field of study, and um, the only thing that's holding you back is the cost of admission, we have to fix that. There's got to be a way for that to not be the gate. You know, I don't think the cost of it, like tuition on itself, 8000 a year, not terrible. Yeah. Uh, so is that 32, 34,000 for a degree for four years? Um, in terms 
it depends what program you're going into. Obviously, if you're going into arts and your, you know, employment opportunities are going to be, you know, not like in the $20, $30 yeah. an hour range, it's going to be a little difficult. But as a nurse, an engineer, as a physician, or as a dentist, um, the student loan programs make it quite easy to get that money. But the cost of living and being unable to work while you're in school, that's where the cost is. Yeah. Four years of unemployment um, with living weight, like, as you know, inflation's gone crazy. Three bell peppers, I think, is like seven ninety nine now. Yeah. You know, you're talking about spending probably $2,500 a month is a reasonable student budget with your rent, utilities, cell phone, internet, food, and outings. Yeah. So what is that? 30000 That becomes $40,000 a year you're spending with your tuition. Eighty, dollars $160,000 a year. $160,000 you'll spend through your degree program. Yeah. So student, I, th- when I, the Alberta, University of Alberta, the residence there, yeah. I thought it was expensive initially. It was $500 a month. Yeah. That's cheap. When I went there, it was like, they want me to live in a hotel for $500 a month. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It should be like two fifty. I went to McGill yeah. in Montreal. Eleven fifty a month. Yeah, the residence there was eleven fifty a month, and you had to get the food options, um, which is in the thousands of dollars a month. Yeah, tuition on itself, I don't think needs to change, but the the loan program that you get, there should be more grants and the interest. You shouldn't be charging your citizens interest for the pursuit of education mm-hmm. and industries where you're desperately needing them. Yeah, we need nurses. We should not be asking student nurses to pay interest on their loans. Like people should be lining. We should have people lining out the door to nursing school. Yeah. And I want to call it Jagmeet Singh. Can we call it Jagmeet Singh a little okay, bit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what he said? Do you know what his plan for student loans was? Do no, you remember? I, I don't know. I didn't. He wanted to, he wanted to take $20,000 away up to $20,000 from every individual with a federal oh, okay. student loan. Just okay. wash it away. Wash it away. That was quite enticing. Okay, so what's he do? Him and the liberals, they have what is called a confidence agreement. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, not a coalition, but they have a confidence agreement. Uh, what did he do with that? I don't know. Absolutely nothing. Jagmeet Singh got absolutely nothing out of that deal. <laughs> I think the fact that he's still the leader of that party. Yeah, yeah, is, it makes you wonder. It makes me wonder. Like, you know, he has this big voice. He talked a really big game. He went like the podium politics. Yeah. He was, he's very good at podium politics. Action, nothing. Yeah. He didn't do anything. Yeah. And I, and I think for, I think for whatever levers the provincial government has, uh, you know, as long as it makes it more affordable for people to do it, yeah. I, I think. And I, and, and I don't know. I think, you know, my, my goal is um, we've looked at numbers and, and, uh, you know, and I, I just had, I've got, uh, I've won my, my daughter's a teacher, married to a teacher. And, you know, she's in her 10th year now, so she's just kind of getting under that mountain of, of cost, and yeah. it was significant when she was done. But it, it is affordability, and how do you deal with affordability? Like, whether the entry point's cheaper, whether uh, I'm not exactly sure exactly how it would work, but the government has to recognize that it, it, it in order for it to make proper investments, make sure the, the people are getting into those areas of study they want to, and then are producing for Alberta and Canada wherever they end up producing hopefully is most of them in Alberta um, we've got to we've got to address it and we think like you, you need to reduce the overall cost of uh, a post-secondary education by you know upwards to 50 percent somehow whether that's you know getting rid of interest costs whether that's um, investing in universities so they can the cost of living's less whatever it happens to be 
those things have to, uh, we have to make consideration for that. Yeah. Because again, finances shouldn't be a barrier for you to become a much more productive citizen. Yeah, and it is, the, when, I was in, uh, when I was at the University of Alberta, the biggest thing were student jobs. They wanted you to work for free. Oh, you yeah. know, there is this huge culture, especially in sciences, where they had all these research laboratories. The professors did not want to pay you. Right. It was an expectation that you would work for free. That creates a huge barrier for people who already have difficulty affording university. Right. And this volunteering, this laboratory work, you almost needed on your resume to get into professional programs, dentistry, pharmacy, and medicine. Okay. And it was... It so was just not enough time in the day to get the rest of the work no. job done, right? Get no. your schoolwork done, do your volunteering, and then by the time you need a get paying money. job, yeah. not, not, not there. Yeah. So... I did kind of a survey with uh, friends and family about the Alberta party. Okay. One question I asked them, do they know, do you know who it is, what yeah. it is? Yeah. Um, most people said, yes, they're aware of you. And if I said, do you know where they sit in the political spectrum? The most, the most common answer was far right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. We're, obviously we're not doing a very good job there. Um, uh, I think it's, to do with the name. Yeah. Uh, everyone knows Alberta associated with conservatives. Yeah. Um, so they intuitively think if they know nothing about the Alberta party, a party named the Alberta party must be conservative, far yeah. right winged. And I've done some research, so I know you're not quite, I know you're not there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> what do you say, like, where you sit on the spectrum? So, yeah. So always people want to put a label on everything. And I, I get that. That makes it simple. And and I can I can only say this, like you know, we're in the spectrum. We're we're in the middle, and the, the we're in the middle based on kind of three things. One is we're we are fiscally responsible. We we really do believe that the services you get, we should be paying for. That that should be run at zero. Like there's no reason for us to, for you to get a service that you've kind of agreed as a priority. And, and not pay for it through however means, whether it's fees, taxes. We think you have to get value for money and that, you know, it's up to us to make sure we're not running deficits, yeah. that we're, we're actually uh, paying as we go so that we're not burdening another generation with poor spending decisions or poor revenue decisions we made before. Because in Alberta, we have not balanced a budget without resource revenue since the early 80s. That's the fact. And, uh, you know, resource revenue has been a gift to us that we've not... To be honest, manage very well. Secondly, uh, we're very socially aware that education, healthcare, and uh, uh, social services, support services, are important. And the reason they're important is because they set the stage for us to be better than we were before. And any deterioration in any of those makes us worse than we were before. I don't know of a single Albertan that I've ever met that says, oh, yeah, those cuts or the lack of investment. Uh, and you tell them, hey, by the way, we're going to be Alberta will be worse if we keep down this road. None of them say, let's be worse. They all want us to be better. So we're very aware of that. And then um, uh, thirdly, um, I lost my statement there. Um, thirdly, I think the, the Alberta party is, is people first, is that the reason government exists is for people. The reason that um, you exist, the reason that I think most people uh, are motivated to be part of government is, is, is to serve people. I don't say that stays, and I, I see we've got lots of examples where they're not serving people. Yeah. But I think the Alberta Party's principle is that you have to serve people. So your education system has to serve people. 
How does it do that? Um, the healthcare system has to serve people. How does it do that? And the structure itself, if it doesn't serve that purpose, has to be changed. You have to change the rules. You got to be willing to make those kinds of changes to stay on mission. Because if you veer off mission in any grand way, which I think we've done in both those areas and even social services as well, we lose, we lose the impact and we make Alberta worse. We're talking about uh, taking care of people make, will make us better in the future. And uh, it's pretty simple. Um, so when we talk about spectrum, uh, there are, you know, we, we don't think the UCP and the NDP are enemies in any way, shape or form. In fact, some of the ideas they come up with and some of the initiatives they talk about would fit right into what the Alberta Party's talking about solutions. Um, the difference for us versus the NDP and the UCP is we're not stuck there. We're not stuck on, like I said to you before, I'm not pretending that I know all the solutions. I know what I want for an outcome, yeah. but I don't know the all of the mechanisms for that. And that there's mechanisms all over the place and we have to be pragmatic about it. And it's not sexy. You know, it's not very sexy for him. I'm going to stand up and do this and I'm going to give everybody this and I'm going to invest billions in that. I'm not here to tell you that. I'm here to tell you we can do things better if we work together. Um, and that means having a more practical approach. Um, it isn't sexy, unfortunately. I wish it was sexy because I think people would know a little bit more about the I Alberta think, Party. You know, just how polarized politics is right now and how, like, you know, you look, you listen to Danielle Smith and I feel like she's sold her soul sometimes. Like she is so driven to like drive home. No more lockdowns. It's kind of like, I don't, people are tired of politicians speaking like politicians. You know, we do want people in leadership who are still people who yeah. aren't afraid to have an opinion that is contrary to what their party's political yeah. opinion is because you're still, you can't sell yourself out to join a political party and still expect to be a good leader my no. opinion yeah um and i think that's the alberta party's mantra when you look at what we're talking about if you if you look at the candidates we've collected and there's a lot more coming right now but if you talk to them there's there's two th there's there's a few things we ask for for candidates like um you know are you really committed to your community like yeah. do you really understand and committed to it and are you willing to advocate for them you know so the alberta party saying no whipped votes and some people have said to me, well, Barry, that's not manageable. In a parliamentary democracy, you have to be able to whip votes in order to get things done. And I go, have you ever tried it? Yeah. Have you ever tried it? None of them have ever tried it. And I think good ideas, I think good ideas rise. I think people get behind good ideas and good initiatives because it's beneficial for them politically too. You don't want to have an intelligent person elected to parliament <laughs> or legislative assembly, sorry, and then be afraid to speak their could be amazing ideas because they don't think that people are going to get behind them. Yeah. You don't want to silence the people that you elect. Nope. That's the exact opposite of electing people into a government. Right. And who does the electing, right? So, so and this is where we've changed. Like if you've seen the structures change, they become very centralized. They decide who to run. They kick people out they don't like, you know, that has an idea on the edge of their... Uh, you know, a, an edge of their acceptance, right? They don't like that person, so now all of a sudden they're not eligible to be even in the nomination contest, right? The Alberta Party, you know, we've got boundaries, and I love how um, uh, Carrie Cundell always brings us up, our candidate in Calgary Elbow. She says, you know, we're a big tent with hard walls. We don't, we don't uh, allow any hate, racism, uh, gender phobias of any kind. We don't allow that to happen. However, 
up to that spectrum. You know, we allow people to have views, views on family, um, views on education, uh, views on healthcare, views on social services, you know, uh, views on drinking and driving, whatever they happen to be, they're allowed to do that. Um, but it, in an open forum with, again, the end goal being serving the people of Alberta, I think it is doable. It happens in municipal politics all the time. I've been part of that. So I think uh, the change in politics is necessary. And to your point about that people have changed, I think they have, is because it's become how do we, um, how do we make sure that we benefit at the next electoral cycle? And that means, you know, we crush out any things that can create problems for us. How many people are you going to have on the ballots? We're going to have, I think we're going to have a, a person on every ballot. I, I really do. We've had, uh, we uh, opened up nominations broadly across uh, all the unfilled yeah. positions here in the beginning of February. We've got a lot of inquiries. Like I think the last count was over 70 for people to run. So I don't think we're going to have a problem. So I think there'll be a, an Alberta party candidate for everybody to vote for. Um, realistically, when we look at the election going forward, uh, I think Alberta has an opportunity um, to have their first minority government ever. Uh, with you know, all things being equal, I think it's very tough, uh, going to be tough to get a majority. And I think if the Alberta party holds a balance of power, I think you can see some of this politics change. Um, because the people that we're electing, the mm -hmm. candidates that are running for us are very committed on those principles. And we'll govern that way. Where are you going to run? That's a really good question because I, I have not ultimately decided. I would be loved to be running at home, but I mean, realistically, is that the best thing for the party um, to run against the premier? It seems the premier is going to be running there again, and uh, that might not be the best thing for the Alberta party. So uh, stay tuned. I'll have an announcement to make in the next few weeks. Do you have someone running in Fort... Who's, do you have a candidate in Fort Sass-Vegreville? Uh, we've had some inquiries here as well, but no, we don't at this point. Not we do not have time. one yet. But So we're I, looking for one. So, you know, if you're interested, the job's open. I might be interested. There you go. I think the other thing, you know, it's a good time now for the Alberta Party. The polarization of NDP versus the UCP allows like an opportunity for a middleman to kind of come in and say, hey, this is our vision. This is what we want to do and to be heard. Yeah. I think it's difficult. I was looking at, now this is Wikipedia. Yeah. So the last Alberta party member that was elected won. The la the time they lost, their budget is said was $7,000 versus the UCP was 30,000. Yeah. Now I think marketing getting your voice heard is a difficult challenge especially if you don't have the opportunity to market. I'm not super familiar with the rules in terms of where how much you're allowed to spend per candidate and why yeah is there any truth to that like yeah. did that ucp candidate have more than yeah three times I, I think the they spent a lot more so right yeah. now the rules allow uh, on an individual constituency you're allowed to spend a little over fifty thousand dollars if you want you can okay. spend up to fifty thousand and then the party provincially is allowed to spend another amount i i can't remember what that is but it's in the it's in the millions yeah. if you want so on an individual basis though you're capped at it's right around fifty three thousand so um uh but you know i've seen campaigns win and lose with a lot less than that um but that but the rules are are there there is maximums you can spend it's kind of a it's difficult to come to terms with like the amount of money a party might have could influence if they get elected yeah and it certainly does yeah you know there's lots of lots of people say money uh, influences politics and that's that's been one of the struggles too i think there's a for the Alberta Party to, you know, we've kind of had ups and downs over the last year on collecting money. 
Um, and it's uh, unfortunately, you know, the reality is people are don't want to be seen supporting us because of kind of some of the vindictiveness that happens in Alberta politics when they see your name. So, you know, once you give us more than an X amount of dollars, you, you're, you're published on the list on Elections Alberta. And some people don't want to be seen supporting that because they're worried about how that affects uh, their lives in other ways. And um, I think that's unfortunate, but that's the reality we're in, is that um, for us to get the message out, you need money to get the message out. Uh, but, I, but I am very much committed to a change in politics that allows strong voices and for people to be heard for what they were, and that allows them to stay committed uh, to their mission, which is to serve, uh, unselfishly serve the population that elects them. And uh, if we deviate from that, then we're no better than the other two in my mind. Um, and then we have to stick to that. And that if we, uh, if we aren't as successful electorally on that basis, then so be it. I think the group that's around uh, the Alberta party and the candidates that are rising are committed to a better way of doing politics and that will ultimately serve Alberta. Yeah, I think so too. There's one more thing I want to ask you about, but I think we should take a small break. Okay. Uh, refresh our coffees. I think the cameraman wants to talk to us. Okay. And then we'll come back and we'll just have that one more topic and maybe wrap things up. Okay. Sounds good. Is that okay, Jerry? Hear that? Okay. Cut.
Well, Barry, thanks for coming back. <laughs> yeah, no, it, this has been Congrats. awesome. I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it's a fun thing to do. And I think just the the press conferences, you don't get to really get to know the people that are speaking. They have this, like the PSAs Trudeau does. Yeah. How fake are those? Yeah, you, no, I agree. You know, so this is a good opportunity to hear your opinions, you to think through them and really just get to know you as a candidate. Oh, I, and I appreciate the effort that's being made. So last thing. Alberta Provincial Police mm. Force. Yeah. So no need for it. Uh, we're, uh, we're opposed to it. Um, we think the RCMP do a fine job. Does it need improvement? Absolutely. Uh, but we're going about it the wrong way. We're going to spend $300 million plus million on a transition. That's what they think it'll cost. They somehow seem to claim that uh, we're going to better better coverage for less money or the same money and that you know municipalities aren't going to have to pay. Everything costs. Everybody pays. Let's not forget that. And then, first of all, let's remember what we're trying to do again. You know, it's been our focal point uh, for our conversation. What are we trying to achieve with policing? We're trying to make sure communities are safe. People see, feel safe in communities in Alberta. They want to move here, raise their families, and, and stay here. Uh, that's happening already. We can use some help and we can use some new initiatives, uh, but that can all happen within the structures. There's no use to spend a lot of money. We've got bigger problems yeah. uh, that we talked about earlier. Could you see a future where rather than kicking the RCMP out and completely transitioning to a provincial police, but rather also having a provincial police work with the RCMP, essentially just expanding the scope of the people we already have, like the sheriffs, uh, the people at the way stations, I apologize, I forget yeah, the yeah, job yeah. description, and the fish and wildlife officers. Like commercial police officers. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know what the, what the final formula looks like. I just know that to uh, you know, propose or uh, say that the RCMP are controlled by Ottawa. First of all, that is a lie. Like I, I won't even mince words. It's a lie. They're under contract to the province of government of Alberta, and they are they are governed by the province of Alberta. And when they're contracted to individual communities, they're contracted that individual community to provide community police services. Yes. So yes, and while and there are federal officers already in Alberta that are RCMP that do federal initiatives, they work jointly together. So let's let's lay it out on the table. They're not controlled by Ottawa. They're controlled by local communities and the provincial government who run those contracts. So that's the truth of it. Going forward, our, I, I don't know. You know, that might be the best way to go. When we're trying to deal with an, a safety issue, it might be that, you know, we expand the sheriff's department. It might be that, that fish and wildlife is expanded because that's the issue. It might be commercial police. Uh, I, I'm not sure. But to predispose, like say, this is the answer, to get rid of the RCMP and we'll have better policing, that is a, that is a fabrication. That is just not true. They don't know that. Um, and even if they did, then don't lie about the cost. So either way, we're, we're, we're just what we're supposed to be doing again. What's best for Albertans? Uh, we should be providing value for money and providing them the service they need. And we don't need to spend that much more resource on policing. You know, $300 million seems like not a lot of money. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's enough. But. I can't remember the cost of Connect Care in hospitals. Do you know off the top of your head? It was over $2 billion. So how is it possible that we're going to implement an entire police force for $300 million and implementing a computer software cost $2 billion? I, I, it does not make sense. Uh, you look at the Surrey example that's been politically bounced around. Uh, now this last council in Surrey has been, uh, you know, four out of the, I think a majority of them want to get rid of the transition back to a, to a Surrey-owned police. 
Um, again, that's what happens when you take a service that uh, should be on a operational basis. Experts should be telling you how it's designed, how it's implemented, how it works, and then politics gets inserted into the conversation and becomes the predominant way you make decisions. You end up with messes like that, and the Alberta Provincial Police idea is just the same. It's a politically driven agenda. It's not a practically driven agenda. It's um, meant to say a message rather than deliver a service, and uh, we're the opposite. We want to deliver the service. The message will be in that, hey, Alberta Party, that was a, you did a good job. The RCMP did a good job. Uh, we're happy with our service. Let's move on to the next thing. That's the most important thing for us, yeah. and uh, that's the difference. Listen to the key stakeholders, the experts. Use their advice to build something that works rather than taking your biased opinion that's driven off of politics and getting votes and then creating something out of that. Yep, that's that's, the, that's exactly who we are. That's how our approach is. We want to take experts, trust Albertans, and uh, trust professionals, let them do their job um, as they understand it, what they were trained for, and we'll, we'll have better outcomes. I really believe that. Great. You know, we could talk for two more hours, especially on nursing topics. There's so much I could talk about. <laughs> I can about. see the passion, yeah. which is awesome. And and this is where we learn things. I learned a lot of things today about about the nursing particularly that's going to help inform our, our, our policy and our and my attitudes and, and my work going forward. And I think that's what we need to do as politicians is, is speak to people who are on the front lines, understand what they're trying to accomplish, what they could accomplish. Yeah. And, uh, and empower them. I think we're, the, the possibilities are endless if we can somehow get our heads wrapped around that concept. Did Brooks have a for uh, Brooks-informed Facebook page? Yes, uh, in terms of yes, yeah, you know, we had our, yeah. You, you can learn a lot about municipal politics based yeah. off of the informed pages on yes, Facebook. Yes, The Fort Saskatchewan one is filled, filled, especially with, you know, comments on the hospital in town, things like that. But anyways, yeah. I guess we'll... Do you have any closing remarks? You, I, you know say? what? I just I just want to say I think we need to do more of this type of conversation. I think Albertans um, are smart and thoughtful, and if we treat them as such, I think we'll get better outcomes. And I and I think the the Alberta Party's committed to that thoughtful conversation. And uh, I hope that when the uh, candidates, as the candidates are coming out, that people have a look at them, um, measure them for what they're worth, what they're talking about. And start to vote for something that'll enhance your community. And let's worry less about uh, the fear that's going on that if the NDP win, the world will come to the end. That if the UCP win, the world will come to the end. That won't be the case. Um, but I think uh, the Alberta Party is an option for you to make it better. And so I hope they would consider us on that basis. Well, well time will tell and not much time at all. No, happen quickly. <laughs> so again, thanks for coming. And if you have any other, you know, members of your party that you want to come and be on this podcast, send them my way. Absolutely, I, I will. I'd love to talk to them and, uh, you know, have some enticing conversations and really see what makes them good candidates and maybe, you know, let their ridings know why they should vote for them. Thanks a lot, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.